0: Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my cool friend, Jessica.
1: Why, hello. Hello,
0: hello. We are going to be talking about Betty Broderick.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes.
0: From soccer mom to psychopath. Oh, God. And, uh... There is a personal connection to this that you'll learn here in a bit. We won't tell you yet. (laughs) Yes. Spoiler, it's not me. It's Jessica. But (laughs) (laughs) If you're new here, hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to follow us on social media, I have a link tree you can check out down below. It has everything that you can click on, on where to find us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that great stuff. Our handle is at three spooked girls and we have a Facebook group as well, where we have all kinds of fun conversation and sometimes do live streams and all of that good stuff. And that is called three spooked girls official. Lots of cool things there as well. And if you would also like to donate to the show and support us here in our spooked girl endeavors, we are on Patreon as well. We also donate 10% of our earnings each and every month in our time. We just sent our donation over today to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That is our nonprofit of choice that we wanted to start contributing to. So thank you guys so much for making that possible. We appreciate each and every one of you and appreciate each and every one of you guys for listening as well. But before we get started, Jessica, what did you and Miss Bellwitch decide on for our drink today?
1: Because we are talking about Miss Betty Broderick. Mm -hmm. And you'll come to figure out why this is important to the story later. But we are doing a drink called divorce papers (laughs) because divorce papers was a big part of this pot yes yes so you can find the recipe manana on all our socials we will post it it looks delicious I didn't make it Kate said it was great she's my artisanal cocktail maker that's not right
0: artisanal expert I don't know
1: yeah we will figure it out But it looks delicious. It has tropical passion fruit syrup in it. Mm. It's a pretty like orangey reddish color. Okay. I'm down for it. You can find that tomorrow on all of our socials. And um, if you make it, make sure you take a picture and send it to us.
0: Yes, yes. Any of our drinks. So if you're catching up or have made any drinks in the past, let us know. Let us know. But uh, I didn't forget about my wine this week. I remembered. Oh, that's a good job. I left it on the counter during Fairy's episode, but uh, I have a glass of Apothic Dark. It's a red blend. Mm. It's not bad. It's not Robert Mondavi that I drink like 99% of the time, but it'll do. It'll do. It's
1: not bad. (laughs) Nice. I um, am also drinking a cranberry ginger ale because, you know. Because you got your like 50 pack. (laughs) It's not my fault they were uh, on sale for $5 for a 24-pack at Costco. Like, God, Costco
0: should have sponsored us at this point.
1: <laughs> Get it, Costco. <laughs> Insert <laughs> ad here. Just kidding. <laughs> I was like, have you ever seen a Costco ad? That might be weird.
0: Right? I don't think I have. Are Costco ads a thing? I don't think so. I think it's just like you just know Costco exists and you just go. That's how badass they are.
1: I love Costco. Right. I know where Costco is everywhere.
0: It's a necessity.
1: <laughs> I know where the Costco is on Maui. Let's put it that way.
0: All right. Well, I mean, in Hawaii, that's a definite necessity for how much cost, uh, groceries cost. But anyways, before we get off the rail on our Costco rant, we are going to take our quick promo break and we will catch you guys in just a minute.
1: Hey, y'all. This is Cindy from Dummy World. Together with my co-host Kelly, we examine the underbelly of society. From true crime to urban legends to cults and beyond, DemiWorld supplies your weekly fix of the dark side of life. New episodes air Monday. Find DemiWorld where your
0: favorite podcasts live. And welcome back, guys. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Betty Broderick today. Jessica's going to kick us off with some backstory and the murders. And then I'm going to take over with the trials and... Current updates on Miss Betty today. So, Jessica, take it away.
1: How dare you tell them that there were a murder involved in this true crime story? Oh, shit. Whoops. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler. I mean, like, let's face it, 95% of true crime stories are murders. Right? <laughs> so, it wasn't really a spoiler. They're like, Betty Broderick.
0: Right? Considering this happened before I was born. So, it's a little bit told of a
1: spoiler. <laughs> true. I was not. I was born. I was three. I was going to say barely born. <laughs> Beau was just born. He was just a wee lad. Ah. okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Betty. Yeah. Betty was born Elizabeth Ann and was born on November 7th, 1947. She's born in a New York City suburb of East Chester. She's the third of six children. Wow. Talk about being the middle child. Yeah. Her family was devout Roman Catholic. Her mother was Marita and her father's name was Frank. Her father owned a very successful plaster company with like his family. So it was like a family run business. She had a very strict upbringing. Betty was trained from basically the womb out to be a housewife, you know, to take care of her husband. And in fact, her mother told her she was to go to a Catholic school, be very careful dating until she found a Catholic man, support him while he works. And be blessed in your later years with beautiful grandchildren. Oh, but for the time. You have to think about it. This was like the 1940s. Mm -hmm. She literally grew up in the 50s, which was like, that's what turned out was like little housewives. And, you know, she's a boomer. So that's what you were supposed to do. Not all women did, but she apparently was a very good housewife. We'll find out later. She went to East Chester High School. And when she graduated, she went to college at Mount St. Vincent's and majored in early childhood education and minored in English. So she was an educated woman. Hmm. In 1965, Betty met Daniel Broderick at the University of Notre Dame. I don't know what she was doing there. I guess she was hanging out.
0: She's trying to find a good man to make her husband.
1: Yeah, it sounds like she took her mom's. Advice, very strict, and went to a Catholic school to find a husband. Pure speculation. Right. (laughs) They married four years later on April 12th, 1969. Please remember that date. Okay. Please remember April 12th, 1969. Or 69 is irrelevant. It's April 12th. Okay. They got married at the Immaculate Conception Church in Tuckahoe, which, by the way, I love any church named Immaculate Conception because it's basically like saying like, it has the word sex in it. <laughs> Conception. True. <laughs> that's, how, that's what happens when you have sex. Conception. <laughs> well, most of, some of the time. But um, I just always thought it was really funny because like when I would be like driving, I'd be like, Immaculate Conception. I get it. Like the Bible, like, and I'm not nothing against the Bible. I want people to know that. I know that like the fairies episode, I came out a little hard against the church, but I have issues with people changing things just to change things Mm -hmm. (laughs) for their own opinions. But I always just thought it was a really funny choice to name your church Immaculate Conception because there are so many other things you could have named it, like Fruitful Harvest right, or the Land of Milk and Honey Church. (laughs) <laughs> you picked one thing and it was just weird. Sorry. It's just, it's a weird name. I concur. Tangent over. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel and Betty returned home pregnant on their honeymoon so that, you know, they got right down to it. Some of the people in Betty and Daniel's life say that basically Betty was an- unhappy from like, they freaking won. She's a complainy complain. Mm. And though that they didn't, people have stated that she wanted to leave Daniel from like early on but she didn't so who knows like I think after it in cases like this people come out and they're like oh no she was unhappy from the get-go so we don't really know the truth Mm -hmm. so in 1970 they had their first daughter Kim in 71 they had their second daughter Lee five years later they had their son Daniel And then three years after that, in 1979, they had their fourth son, Rhett. They did have another child. Unfortunately, they didn't get a chance to name him before he passed, Mm -hmm. which is kind of sad. Yeah. So during the time of early years in their marriage, they had a baby like right away. And Daniel was still going to medical school to get a degree in medicine. And like a good wife, like her parents told her to, she... She got a job. In fact, she she has said that she's worked up to five jobs at one time to support the family because, I don't know about you, but Cornell Medical School is not a cheap medical school. hmm Yeah, it's a smidge expensive even for, like, the late late 70s, early 80s. So he ended up graduating right after, I believe, like, really close to when Kim was born. But that wouldn't be enough for Daniel. He didn't want to just be a doctor. He, in fact... Went back to school to become a lawyer to get his JD, which it would be great if he went to like any law school that was affordable, but not but not Daniel Broderick, only the best for him because he was a name brand chaser. He went to Harvard Law School. So Betty worked this entire time while he was going to school and then he graduated and he was very bright. No one can take that from him. He was very bright and he looked like he had a great future. And shortly after graduating, he took a job in San Diego at a law firm. So they moved from the East Coast because Harvard's in like the Boston area to the West Coast, which could not be the more opposite. Like if you're somewhere like near Harvard right now, you're like, it's freezing there's 29 feet of snow <laughs> in San Diego. They're like, what's snow? What? It doesn't, snow is fake, right? Like, no, no offense, San Diego. I love San Diego. It's beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I say that because I'm jealous because but. you guys have great weather. Girl. I know you, I can't say anything. Tara should be je- more jealous. It, she sent me a text message earlier. It was negative nine degrees when she went to pick up her kid from school today. And I was just like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to respond. Like, she's like, look at the temperature. And I'm like, ah, fuck. <laughs> it hurt my face. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm, I'm I'm, sorry. Like, do you want my heater? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that was warm. Huh. Yeah, it was like negative 20 something the other day. Yeah, no, it's been fun lately.
1: Please move soon. Mm-hmm. And so during this time, like, well, when they were in Boston, Betty worked as like a school teacher and she did odd jobs. She sold like Tupperware and Evian or Avon, not Evian. Evian's a water. I was like, she sells water. <laughs> she sold Evian. She's like, would you like my water? No, I'm kidding. She sold Avon. Um, and then when they moved to San Diego because they were still trying to get financially secure, she continued to sell. They bought in kind of like an upscale neighborhood called Coral Reef. And he began his practice. And let me tell you, Daniel Broderick was a great attorney. Mm hmm. He basically built a malpractice lawsuit, and I can see this. Like, if you're going to be a malpractice lawyer, having a medical degree, it's freaking Gucci. Because, like, you will literally, like, oh yeah, oh, like, I work in a world where malpractice is a big thing. Like, I work for an association that helps a certain type of doctor, and people pay through the nose for great malpractice insurance because who you can get just like the littlest things you don't even think of. Boom. Malpractice lawsuit. Right. So he was specifically, because there's different kinds of malpractice lawsuits or malpractice lawyers, he was a medical malpractice lawyer. Their life on the outside seemed quite perfect. They had the beautiful house, the blossoming family. They had, you know, the nice car, which I want to point out, I made Tara watch this movie because I... (laughs) I have a special connection to this movie. It's A Woman Scorned, the Betty Broderick story. It came out in 1992. And Meredith Baxter is in it. And Stephen Collins, which, by the way, if you don't know who that is, he's the guy who played the dad on 7th Heaven. And he also wrote a smut book.
0: And he's also trash.
1: Oh, yeah, because didn't he, like, sexually harass someone?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was, like, kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, now I remember.
0: Mm-hmm. Ugh. Anyway, it's in our sources page if you would like to watch
1: oh yeah no it's great it's a great movie but like I want to point out that like he at this point in time when they like the movie starts like their oldest daughter is like probably high school age and she's like the soccer mom and she's on the field like coaching and is like go Tommy which is not the kid's actual name but whatever like you know she's like Go and then like Daniel walks up and is like, "How do we do?" And she's like, "Our son scored the winning goal." And he's like, "We got three million dollars out of this deal." And she's like, "We get a quarter of that." So a lot of what their life was was really about status. In fact, Burl Stiff, he was a society columnist for the San Diego Union, which I'm assuming is some sort of paper. I found this quote in the L.A. Times. They were almost central casting for early yuppie. He always looked straight from polo. She always had very pretty clothes, Oscar de la Renta, and the like. So, like, they were dressed always to the nines. Like, one of the second kind of scenes in this is that Meredith Baxter, who's playing Betty, is narrating through the movie. And she's like, we had a perfect life. Like, look at us. We're going out to this evening out with like all his work people and it's a big party and I assume it had to do with the bar association or something like that because it happens later on in the series just a little change um <laughs> smidge and you know they're she was in this like beautiful gown and everyone was like oh my god you look so fantastic and she's like well if was standing next to him I'd have to and it was like that kind of thing where it was all about look at me look at me look at us we've arrived and I thought it was funny like I don't know if this is the true story or not But, like, it was something that kind of, like, leads you into who you think her character is. Everyone's like, congratulations on that case. And he's like, oh, no, thank you. I owe it all to you. And he's like, all I did was recommend you. And he's like, yeah, but you put your, you know, put your neck on the line for me. And he's like, so guess what we're doing? I'm taking you guys to Paris. We're leaving this Thursday. And I'm sorry, but if my husband walked into the living room and was like, hey, we're going to Paris this Thursday, I'd be like, fuck yeah. How do I pack? Can we go early? Is it can we leave now? Like, is that an option? Not her, who's like, Dan, that's my manicure day. I'm like, really? You can't get a fucking manicure tomorrow? (laughs) Or, you know, in Paris? Right? What the fuck? (laughs) Because, like, her thing was is that she didn't want him to have more status than her. Mm -hmm. That's very obvious when you're watching this movie and you kind of, like, read about their life is that everything was status. Everything. Right. So... They had the money, you know, they were living the high life and like they, be- they belonged to two country clubs. They had a house in that, like in Colorado, they had all of these different, like they, they had well, which I, uh, this is the part I didn't like is in the movie. She has like a suburban, which I get Suburbans are expensive cars, but like, and so, <laughs> so like she had a suburban and he had like a two door Corvette. Yeah. I'm like, where's her car? Where's Meredith's car? <laughs> God damn. <laughs> right. So at this point in her life, she's stepped away from like supporting him because obviously he's making a lot of money and she's being the doting mother, the arm piece, like she's being all of this. And everything seems to be going well until about 1982 when Dan needed a new assistant because who the fuck knows? His was out. So they hired this girl. Her name was Linda. And Linda. She was 21 years old and she was like, I am so cute because I'm Linda and I used to be an airline stewardess and not, I mean, i shouldn't really make fun of her. But <laughs> but this is kind of how they portray her is that she's this like wide eyed, like I'm here and was mm-hmm. like totally unqualified for the job, but he gave it to her. And there's like the talk that basically he instantly felt attracted to her. So that's why he kept her. Yeah. So Betty is like, oh, my God, who is this? So he hires Linda in 1982 in the fall. Unlike in the movie, which is where he hires her at like St. Pat- he first sees her at St. Patrick's Day, which could be true. But like,
0: yeah, in, in the movie, they make it seem like her coming into their lives and them getting together is so boom, boom, boom. But it's actually quite a few years. Yeah, like her coming into their lives and then their developments.
1: It's like three years. Yeah. So in the movie, you see like this cute little thing walk through and is like, hi, I'm here. And he's like, she's beautiful. And Betty Broderick is like, I've never heard him call anyone beautiful. And it was like a St. Patrick's Day event. Was it even beautiful? I think it was just like pretty.
0: I think it was something like not even like that big a deal. And she's just like, what? Like, (laughs) it's like, oh.
1: But he also could not have called her pretty lately. So we don't know. Yeah, that's true. It's something it's so like minuscule. He's just like says to a colleague, she's pretty. And Betty is like, he's fucking wanting to sleep with her, you know, because she's crazy. And I don't throw that word around lightly. Like, no, later on, I'm going to talk about some things you're going to be like, oh, like, if you don't know who this person is, you're going to be like,
0: OK. Betty is fucking nuts. I'm sorry. Betty
1: is nuts. Yes. So in the fall of 1982, he hired Linda to be his assistant. He wanted a legal assistant to come in and help. And he thought she was really good talking to people. And she must have been because, you know, he worked for a large corporation an, or a large firm, I should say. And I don't think they would have kept her employed if she didn't do her job. Yeah. I mean, I would hope. But this is the 90s. Right. And OK, I'm going to do my hashtag rant right now. I will say that Tara and I have been talking about this case and something that really hits a chord with us or like it bugs us is that like in the 90s, 80s, it's actually in the 80s. So in the 80s, there was this thing like the first wife syndrome. You would find a woman to, like, have your kids and is going to be this great mom. And then you get to a certain point in the marriage where she's starting to look like a mom and not maybe a supermodel, and you divorce her for a newer model. It's something that we've seen in media, in different content for years. Yeah. That really kind of started circulating about the 80s. And so, like, Betty was literally one of the first wives. Yeah. Yeah. You know what this
0: makes me think of, too, is that movie First Wives Club. Not so dark, but mm-hmm. that whole thing. That's what that is.
1: Yeah. So and, and during that time, the first wife was supposed to cash an alimony check, take care of the kids. The kids were supposed to pop in and out. And then dad either has second family or just has his plaything, And that's life. He makes money and wife number one takes care of the kids and possibly remarries, but not always. So that's my rant. I don't like it. I think it was stupid. I think a lot of kids are fucked up. Like a lot of my generation is fucked up because of it. And I think that's why we have a lot of intimacy issues, is because there were a lot of parents who were like, eh, I can do better on the second marriage. It's fine. Divorce is a thing. That's my rant. And I will leave it now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, right out the gate, Betty is like, you're sleeping with your assistant. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not sleeping with Linda. Like, you need to chill. I'm not sleeping with Linda. And she doesn't believe this. You know, Dan tries to do nice things like buy her presents. And like one of the scenes in the movie, I think, is really kind of a it shows where their marriage really was. If this really happened, this really shows where their marriage was. And it's Christmas. And. All the kids have opened their gifts and everything is great. The kids are all happy. And Dan comes over with this like little gold box and he's like, oh, he's like playing around like it's not for Betty. He's like giving it to his daughters and like taking it back. And then like he finally hands it to Betty and she like opens it and she's all excited and she opens it and her face immediately is like, the fuck is this shit? And she's like, it's beautiful. And he's like, yeah, I know it's not the one you wanted, but like, I really like this. Which I'll be really honest, like if my husband came home with a beautiful piece of jewelry that he loved, it's because when he bought it, he thought about like the experience of like me wearing it around him, which means it's like he would look at it and get some joy out of it and hoping that you would also get some joy out of it. But not Betty. According to Betty, this is not the ring she wanted, so therefore it was crap. I'm pretty sure that's the line she said. Something like that, yeah. Because at this point, like, Dan has just bought a new Corvette that he drove basically seven hours to get. I don't know. That's kind of what they said. I was like, they live in LA. or they, Oh, no, they live in San Diego. So driving to Malibu during rush hour. I'm back. Yeah, That could be. Yeah. He goes and he gets this new Corvette and it's what he wanted and he paid extra money for it. So she can't understand why he wouldn't give her the ring she wanted, even if it was a little more. And he's like, this ring doesn't cost anymore. It's just the ring that I liked. And it kind of shows you where Betty's mind is because she's like, it's always what you want. It's always what Dan, it's always what the king wants. So who cares? And she like storms off. And you can just see that he's like defeated and all the kids are like, mom exploded again. Because this is also like after she's accused him of cheating and lit his clothes on fire, which I don't know if many of you men out there let us know if your wife set your clothes on fire. Would you stay with your wife? Oof. No. Run. At that moment, like if Thomas went out and burned all my clothes, I would have him committed. Like, there's something wrong with him. There's arson involved. But I think he was trying to, like, spare his kids. Mm -hmm. The way it looked, at least, is that he was trying to salvage the marriage. Mm -hmm. Well, in the movie timeline, Dan never cheats on Betty. In real life, Dan started sleeping with Linda in January of 1983. Okay. I have to say, and I want to say this, like, I'm not sure which Christmas... In fact, that the whole ring thing happened. It may have been in 1984. I'm going to say that. I'm pretty sure I forgot to write down the dates. I will find it so we can make sure it's like in the right, like on the sources page that it's right. (laughs) But I mean, she was crazy. Like, let's just flash forward to February of 1985. So Dan is kind of at his wits end with Betty. He's like, I just can't do this and I'm going to move out. And he does. Because, I mean, at this point, like, he's been accused of cheating, which he technically was, but hadn't admitted to it yet. Mm -hmm. She was breaking shit all the time. She was burning his suits, like, ruining holidays. Like, their life had to have been, like, the most bipolar, unhappy experience ever. It had to be so manic that I hope her kids got the right therapy they needed. So Dan leaves. Because at this point in time, they're redoing their house, and I think they're in kind of like a rental home at this point, and Dan goes back and is basically living in their house as it's being refurbished. Well, Betty thought to herself, how do I get him back? How do I get him to see that what I'm doing is important in this family? I know what I'll do. I'll systematically drop our children off on his doorstep with no prior notice. In fact, I'll drop my kid off not knowing if Dan will be home at all that night, because the one thing is Dan flew all over... I believe, California, to prosecute these cases. And this is this is the 80s. Like, kids didn't have cell phones. If they didn't have a key to the house, how the hell are they getting in? In the movie, Dan comes home one night and his, like, youngest son is just sitting on the porch. And he's like, was I supposed to pick you up? Oh, my God, I, I forgot. I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, mom dropped me off, mm-hmm. like, an hour ago. Did your mom call me? Like, I wasn't, like, he's like, I wasn't supposed to come home tonight. I just got done early and came home. So, like, could you imagine little Rhett sitting on the step all night and his dad not coming like being home. Oh, that kid all night. She started doing this like so at one point in time, like Betty's big claim to fame is I'm a great mom. But what am I going to do to prove I'm such a great mom? I'm going to give my children away here. Take my kids. (laughs) And, you know, Dan probably wasn't the best dad. I mean, he worked a lot of hours and probably didn't help kids with homework, which they kind of pointed out in the movie. But, you know, he was still there for them. And Betty would like stop by and Betty would like come hang out. And it started to get a little crazy. In fact, what they show is the final straw is Linda baked a cake for Dan and the kids. And I'm assuming what happened is she probably brought it to work. I mean, I don't know. I'm making an assumption. You can at me for my assumptions. It's my this is my opinion, not an assumption. My opinion (laughs) is that she probably brought it to work and he probably brought it home. They weren't like divorced yet. He just moved out, so it'd be really presumptuous for him to bring Linda around his kids, right? Without like being like it's it's over with. Mm-hmm. So Betty shows up at the house; her stuff is still there, and is like, "What's this to the kids?" Like picks up the cake, and they're like, and you know, the little boy, not knowing that it's um a bad thing to say, goes, "Oh, Dad's friend Linda made that <laughs> for us," which triggered her into smashing it all over the bedroom. Because I think Dan obviously was having an like in real life was having an affair, but probably for the sake of his children, we're going to work it out with Betty. Yeah. But this was the last straw. He met her at a restaurant and basically said, look, I want a divorce. She was like, "Okay, whatever. Shit started escalating. She broke into their house and spray painted the walls, broke shit, broke all their china. Like she broke into their house by using like a pool umbrella and shoved it through like one of the little squares. So then he slapped her with a divorce. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would want to go up against a high powered attorney, medical malpractice or not in this case. Well, Betty kind of had a hard time. So they started their divorce proceedings in 1985. It took four years for it to come to, like, fruition. During this time, Betty harasses the fuck out of them. Like, so much harassment. Like, calls them leaving very vulgar message, calling Linda a slut, calling Dan a pedophile because she's of the age difference. Which, like, when they got married, he was 44 and she was 28. Yeah, that's That's an age difference, but it's not terrible. Right. I've known weirder couples. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. So, and by the way, this battle, this like Broderick versus Broderick became like the worst divorce case in San Diego County history. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that Betty felt so entitled to the money because he wouldn't have been able to have the money if she hadn't supported him early on which is kind of like this there was a trigger with this case it's like does a woman who supports her husband through his formal education or even like trade education should she be able to reap the benefits of that because i mean like she busted her ass for him to go to college and now that he's successful and is they should be living the life that they want someone else is reaping the benefit like that doesn't seem fair i mean just saying Not that I'm taking Betty's side on this because I think that equal parts here. I think Betty was a little cuckoo and therefore he found greener pastures to get away from cuckoo-ness. I don't think it really had anything to do. I don't think that this particular case has anything to do with like trading in for a younger model. I really feel like this case is more like my wife burned my suits and I don't really feel like being intimate with that. Mm hmm. (laughs) So throughout the whole divorce, I mean, it was a long divorce. Like most people, their divorces happen very quickly. I mean, with kids, it can be, I'm assuming it could be a little bit more tricky. I don't know. I don't, I've never been in a situation. But um, I know that sometimes it gets tricky because you have to get like custody battle, like custody agreements out of the way. And so that's something that has to be like solved before you can get the divorce because it's all kind of congruent with that. So Betty goes through She goes through quite a few lawyers because she's mean to them. Like, we think she's mean to Dan. Like, she's just mean to everyone in her life that doesn't agree with her. Like, Betty needed a bunch of yes people and everyone was like, I don't know. I don't know about you. And they tell her no and she'd be like, you're gone. True. (laughs) So she went through so many different lawyers. In fact, she went through so many different lawyers that on the last day of her divorce proceedings, she didn't have an attorney. So she didn't show up to court. Mm. And the judge was like, it's been four years. The shit's done. She didn't show up. Dude, you get everything you want. And I want to say she got $16,000 a month in alimony. Right. Like, do you know what I could do with $16,000 a month? Right. I know. In the 80s? That's like. That's crazy. That's a lot now. I don't even know what inflation would make it. But like, <laughs> that's, oh my God, like that's so much. Like, I'm just going to point out she should not have killed him. I mean, also, during the divorce as well, one of the things that ends up happening is Betty is like, you know what? I'm going to stonewall because they were going to sell their home that they had in San Diego together. (laughs) What? That's almost (laughs) $50,000. Are you? (laughs) Betty. Betty. What are you thinking? In 2020, you could be living the highest of lives. I'm just saying. Holy fuck. (laughs) Okay. Everyone else mad at Betty Broderick right now? Just me? Okay. Okay she's like girl I know money doesn't solve all your problems but I'm pretty sure you could have bought a whole new set of problems yeah oh my god right like you could have been somebody else's like love monkey because for me that would have been the ultimate fuck you it would be like now I'm sure he would be like retired and being like still having to shell out money to your ass if you never got married
0: yeah oh my god
1: oh wow okay now that Tara just dropped that fucking bomb on me I'm gonna recover (laughs) Because, I mean, this is the shit that happened. Like, Betty and Dan had this house in Coral Reef, and they were like, okay, how much? Because we need to sell the house because Betty hated it and didn't want to live there because of all the bad memories. And, of course, he and Linda bought a new house and were living happily ever after with Betty and Dan's kids. So, Betty was like, I know what I'll do. I'll stonewall this. I'm not going to take anything less than a million dollars for this house that's not worth more than $325,000. She's like, a million or nothing. Dramatic walks off. Dan, being an intelligent lawyer, finds a legal loophole because that's what people do in divorces, Betty. People find legal loopholes. That's why they're there. So he basically found there was a way for him to sell the house without her permission. And he did. And Betty got really mad and drove her car through the front of Dan's house. That's so unreal to me. Like, not just, like, drove in, but, like, drove in and backed out and drove in and backed out and drove in and backed out. And then when he had the gall to get her out of the car, she started to beat on him. Granted, he did punch her once in the movie. He, like, uppercutted her tummy. But in all fairness, like, at this point, like, she had rammed his house. She was beating the living shit out of him. She could have killed their kids. Right. Like, her kid. They're. All of her children were in the house. Like, yeah, if those pillars had given way, like, I have a feeling that car would have gone straight into that staircase where they were all fucking standing.
0: Yeah. Or like, God forbid they were down right there. What if they were
1: not away? They had just gone in the house. Yeah. Like, yeah. What if he had like a little setup to like take your shoes off or I don't know, like something. I would have fucking uppercutted that bitch, too. Jesus, fuck. <laughs> right. Like, mm-hmm. Betty. And then she got really mad because she got arrested. She didn't understand why she's getting arrested because it's all Dan, the king's fault. And I'm like, no, Betty, you drove your freaking car. You drove the Suburban into his front door. But it's OK, Betty. It's all Dan's fault. He has everyone working against you. You've just committed like felony assault with a motor with the like A vehicle.
0: And broken how many fucking restraining orders at this
1: point? Jesus. Right. Oh, yeah. Because at this point, they have a restraining order. Yeah. She can't go near the house or the kids. Yeah. So after the divorce is final, Dan gets everything, which rightfully so. Like if any person drives a vehicle into another into a building where people live, a domicile of some sort on purpose, you do not deserve your children because that's crazy, like that shows that you do not have logical reasoning ability because a logical part, like I'm going to be honest, a lot of us have envisioned like running over our ex. We have. Mm-hmm. We've envisioned it. There, There's a reason their exes and they infuriate us. But, but, <laughs> but the logical person is like, you know what? That's a felony. It's against the law. It's bad to hurt people. I'm just going to keep that in the back of my head and never do anything about it, but We've all, like, we've all envisioned harm coming to someone. Betty just couldn't stop. She needed some sort of intervention. So Dan has full custody. Betty doesn't even have fucking supervised visits at this point. Like, she gets shit. Which, by the way, she picks her kids up a lot without their dad knowing. And I'm like, kids, you know that you can't go with her. Why go with her? But then again, maybe you go with her because she's crazy. Yeah, they're probably like, this bitch will fucking run me over next. Right? So Dan and Linda... They start living their life together because now Betty's out of the picture finally because she can't see the kids and she's not supposed to see Dan, but she calls them all the time. Like there's a scene where Dan is sitting there. This is later towards the end of the movie. Dan is sitting there like watching the phone calls come in from Betty. And I'm assuming at this point in time, like if it was me, I would have just kept that line and just like turned the phone all the way down and like not listen to the voicemails and just have moved on with my life. But I don't know. Dan was listening to them which is how we figure out that she gets $16,000 worth of alimony because he says it. He answers the phone and is like, if you continue to do this, I will take $100 for every time you leave a vulgar message for every vulgar word you say in a message. I think it was that for every time you break the restraining order. And I will take $1,000 every time you pick up our kids without my permission. And he's like, and at this point, you're down 1500 from your 16000 And I was like, she gets what? Okay. So to bring life full circle, Dan takes Linda to the wonderful bar association thing that you see Betty and Dan go to at the beginning of the movie. He's in the same damn outfit. (laughs) He is. He's in the same damn outfit. And he proposes to Linda there. Whether this is just for the movie or not, I don't know. I'm going off of the movie because it's what te- it tells me. <laughs> Everything else just tells me they got engaged. Yeah. So they decide to get married April 22nd, 1989. Remember how earlier I told you to remember the date? Mm-hmm. Because Dan and Betty got married April 12th. Motherfucker, you couldn't even pick a different month. Gross. Right? That's 10 days. Ugh. That's 10 days. If they get married 10 days, what would have been Betty and Dan's 20th wedding anniversary? Let mm. that soak in for a second. But during this time, Betty got a little crazy and in fact stole the list of guests from Dan and Linda's house. And personally called every single one of the guests that she knew and harassed them by saying, How dare you go to the wedding? You're betraying me. Because Betty took it very personal that people who knew Dan and Betty would betray her by going to Dan's second wedding. In March of 1989, fun fact, Betty bought a Smith & Weston, which Dan knew about because he wore a bulletproof vest under his outfit, even though the movie says he didn't. He did. Mm. Yeah, because she had said to the children, I'm going to kill your father. <sighs> so Linda was like, fucking wear this. This is important. <laughs> I don't want you to die. And then I was kind of like, "Uh, Linda, what are you wearing under your dress? Nothing. OK, so just you. Just you. Got it. OK, cool, Linda. <laughs> right. So Betty bought a gun and people were like Dan knew about it and people were really nervous. So. After Dan and Linda got married, which, by the way, their wedding went off without an incident. Betty stayed at home, drank some cocktails, just ignored what was happening. Betty tried to convince the kids. Guess what? Dad isn't going to love you anymore. He's married now. He's going to move on. Well, Dan has this moment like where he tells his kids like, I love you. You're my whole life. I don't want you to think that. And it's very cute and happy. And so he really starts to think about the relationship that Betty is having with her kids because She's not seeing them because he has full custody and he feels bad about that. So he actually tries to do something nice by basically petitioning the court so that she could have temporary visitations. And because of Betty's sporadic manic behavior, people had urged Dan to put a clause in there saying, it's okay to do this, but if you behave badly, it's one and done. It's not like you get six or seven chances, it's one and done. Because at this point, she's already been given like nine million chances. Betty doesn't respond well to this. Betty stews about this. And on the night or the morning of November 5th, 1989, Betty Broderick gets in her car with her Smith and Weston and drives to 1041 Cypress Avenue in San Diego, just near Balboa Park. Uses the key she stole from her daughter, Lee. She stole it from her purse. Entered the home, went upstairs, and at about 5.30 in the morning, this is where it gets a little, like, meddled. The original story is that Betty was going to kill herself in front of them. Dramatic. So that would be their fault. But she said something happened in the movie. Linda wakes up and is like, (gasps) and Betty just fires off a couple rounds into her and then starts to shoot at Dan. She says later on in an interview that Linda woke up and yelled, call the cops. So she shot Linda and then she shot Dan and then pulled the trigger a few more times, which just kind of sprayed the room. The good thing is that Linda was killed instantly. So it wasn't like she had, to endure a painful death from being shot. Unfortunate for Dan, that's not what happened. Linda went around because Dan was trying to get the phone to call 911 because I do think that Dan could have probably maybe have been saved. But Betty takes the phone and pulls it out of the wall and it's like essentially walks off. That's how the movie ends. Mm -hmm. Betty later said that she actually spoke with Dan before he passed. Yeah. And Dan's last words were, okay, you shot me. I'm dead. At this point, I'm going to hand it off to Tara because she's going to tell you about the rest of this crazy story. Good God. Fucking Betty.
0: There was no long chase. No huge investigation, no nothing, because that same day that Betty murdered Dan and Linda, she would turn herself in. She initially never denied that she killed them, and after this, we would start another long, long journey in the courts with her trials. Betty's defense attorney was Jack Early, and the prosecution, which I come to actually like, is Carrie Wells. So on November 15th of 89, Betty would plead not guilty, even though she admitted to what she did. Hmm.
1: That seems to happen a lot.
0: Right? To two counts of murder against Dan and Linda, and a different story would begin to unfold. We'd have a lot of time until the trial would actually start, about a year. The actual trial would start on October 22nd of 1990 and sad face because the 22nd is my anniversary. (laughs) When I saw that in the movie, I was like, (laughs) no, I have to get married again. (laughs) We got to move it. But because of the status that Betty and Dan had in San Diego when they were married and all of that within the socialite thing and all of that and with him being such a bigwig with all the lawyers and he I think he was also the president of the Bar Association too. Mm -hmm. this hit the media hard. And of course, she loved the attention. So it was everywhere, both sides of the story. So Dan and Linda's side and her side, she was doing all kinds of interviews. If you look up Betty Broderick for LA Times, you'll get all kinds of stuff and all kinds of stuff on our sources. There's tons and tons of articles. And parts of the trial was actually broadcasted live on TV. You can find stuff very easily on YouTube as well. If you'd like to see the real Betty firsthand, which I do recommend because um, she's fucking crazy. Yeah, she is. Let me just tell you guys, I watched the movie first because I wanted to watch the movie first because there's actually two movies. And in the the link I put it on the sources page, they have both in one video. So it just kind of makes it easier for you because you're like, God, three hours for one movie? No, it's both movies.
1: That's what I thought at first when I was watching it. I was like, Mother Trucker, this is really
0: Yeah. I don't have time for three hours. Yeah, no, it's both movies. So I'm assuming it ran like a mini series, because you know, that back then they loved to do the mini series. Hello it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right.
0: If this kind of stuff interests you, like definitely go watch it. It's a good watch. It's a good watch. Matt even watched it with me. So I'm going to give you a rundown kind of how things went with the trial. So the defense, their narrative was that Betty was an abused woman at the hand of Dan. She had dealt with emotional, mental, and verbal abuse and had also suffered from battered woman syndrome. It's also presented that Betty had sacrificed everything for her husband and family. Like Jessica said, she had a bunch of different jobs over the course of when Dan went through medical and law school and all of that, and she was also taking care of the house and all of their kids and all of the responsibilities that came with that as well. And then she had also, of course, endured the tragedy of losing a child shortly after birth, and it was said allegedly that Dan was off on a ski trip with friends when the child had died so he wasn't even there and she had to go through all of that alone i don't know if that was actually confirmed or if this was a betty elaboration
1: yeah that's the hard part with betty is like you don't know what is true and what isn't true and then you don't know what is true True within the out circles of their family as well, because I'm sure Betty is telling them one story and Dan's telling them another
0: right, and this isn't us just shitting on Betty because I will say Dan's family after his death weren't the best people either, so back to the this trial stuff so according the defense, the neglect and abuse over the course of the 16 years that they were married from Dan is what pushed this, quote, perfect mother and wife over to the edge and made her snap and that she didn't plan to do what she did. It just happened. Basically, like blacked out and boom. The prosecution, though, had a narrative as well, and it was a little different. They presented that Betty was mentally unstable and that she did plan the murders of Dan and Linda. And the evidence that they brought throughout the trial was to support this from all kinds of different actions she did over the course of the past six or so years after their separation and through their divorce. Pretty much basically all the stuff that Jessica did tell us here just a bit ago. Betty broke various restraining orders by leaving various voicemails that were vulgar as shit. I know we cuss a lot on here, but some of the stuff that she said is just like disgusting, especially because there's even ones where her kid would answer the phone and her two younger kids were pretty young the vandalizing of the home. And she wasn't left high and dry. Like Jessica said, she had that 16K in alimony. It was actually 16 dollars And like we said, it was about $50,000 in today's money. So a lot of fucking money. And she also had a home in La Jolla that was valued at $650,000. That Dan had purchased for her. She didn't even buy it. So it was in his name. He had taken care of it, everything. And she also had two vehicles at this point as well. And she had a boyfriend, she had new life, everything. So it wasn't like she was just screwed. She was taken care of. Wasn't quite up to the standard she wanted, of course, but she wasn't broke, anything like that. Like Sometimes some women get nothing.
1: But if you really look at it, like they sold their house For like $325,000, but he bought her a house, double that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you wanted this elaborate dream. You literally got it. You just didn't get it with Dan.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Along with this, they had more. The prosecution brought in Dr. Dietz, who had an analysis previously conducted by Dr. Melvin Goldsband. I love his name because it's like Golds with a Z and then band. So I'm like,
1: I know,
0: fancy. And he had deemed Betty to have histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders. Now, if you're not familiar with these, I'm probably saying this wrong. Please nobody come at me. Okay, let's just not. It's fine. Historonic personality disorder is characterized by a pattern of excessive attention-seeking emotions usually beginning in early adulthood, including inappropriate seductive behavior and an excessive need for approval. Many of you are probably familiar with narcissistic personality disorder, but if you're not, that's a personality disorder characterized by a long-term pattern of exaggerated feelings of self-importance, an excessive need for admiration, and a lack of empathy towards other people. A lot of the time, people with this often spend too much time thinking of about achieving power and success and also worrying about their appearance. Typically, they also take advantage of people around them. Now, Betty definitely fits the bill here. Uh, My opinion's unqualified, but anyone with a brain can probably agree with this. Emphasis on unqualified, just saying. So again, please don't have me, but... My points being, she has zero empathy on the lives lost of Dan and Linda. Yes, shit happened, but she only focuses on the poor me, look what it did to me. I mean, sometimes she includes her kids, which yes, those children, and I think possibly hot take, Linda and Dan died, but those are probably the biggest victims in this. I'm just saying. The kids, yeah. Because they lost their they've lost both their parents. They lost their mom, they lost their dad, they lost maybe a stepmom they may have had a relationship with. They have all this trauma they have to deal with that they dealt with when they were alive and all of this after and all of the aftermath like it's not ending.
1: Right. And this isn't like a case where all of a sudden out of the blue the mom snaps and kills the dad and no one saw it coming. It's like these kids, especially some of the younger ones Watched their mother systematically abuse them, mentally abuse them and and then abuse their father, right. And I want to say this, like I don't condone cheating. I just don't right. But it's like he should have just gotten a divorce, right because it was thrown around a lot. and he should have like just called her bluff one day when she's like, "I want a divorce and been like, "Sure, let's get a divorce and just gone and mm-hmm. not brought Linda into the picture until the dust had settled right.
0: Because, like, you know, we're not saying Dan's a saint, anything like that, but he didn't deserve to die. Mm -mm. And Linda didn't deserve to die. But long story short, that ramble, those diagnoses, like, neither of those, they don't surprise me at all with Betty. I think they're spot on. Along with that, on October 24th, during the trial, Kim, their 20-year-old child, testified that the hatred that Betty had towards Dan and Linda she was just always spewing it and she wanted the kids to hate them too. So, and then she also brings up the car incident from 86 that happened at Dan's home that Jessica told us about earlier. That's fucking terrifying. And then on Halloween, it was Betty's turn to testify. This would be when she would go on to say that she wasn't planning on killing Dan and Linda. She had brought the gun to make Dan listen. And like Jessica said, this is when she went on with her whole story of she was planning on killing herself. She wasn't gonna kill anybody else but then when she was asked why she didn't she comes up with a bunch of different excuses from she couldn't just just you know like oh i couldn't do it i just got nervous da 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 and then eventually she just said i ran out of bullets and then we'll flash forward to the end of that shit show on November 20th of 90. And the jury began deliberation and they came back to the judge. Unfortunately, this would not be the end. So they couldn't come to an agreement. 10 were for murder and two were for manslaughter. They were stuck on how Dan had treated Betty. And some had even said to, uh, I wonder what took her so long. So I guess some things just didn't add up for them. I don't know. They were just really indecisive and just maybe just sympathized with her too much kind of thing. So, of course, because of a hung jury, a mistrial was declared by Judge Thomas Whalen. And then about... Five months would go by, you know, because stuff likes to take its time with Betty, apparently. A plea bargain would come through from Jack over to Carrie saying that Betty would plead guilty in exchange for a 20 year sentence. But Carrie was like, oh, fuck no, because basically the details of that got Betty out of having any murder charges, the paraphrasing in short version of that. Carrie wanted to go after her to get those murder charges since that's what she fucking did. So she knew the risk because there was a chance that Betty would get off with basically, you know, nothing or with manslaughter or whatever. But she was just like, no, we're going to go up out again and we're going to do it and she's going to get what she deserves. But little side fun fact, before she went back to court, there was a scuffle in September of that year between Betty and three deputies and apparently she ended up injuring them. Um, Along with this, she spread shit all in her cell. So that's great. And her team, her defense team, said that it was provoked because they were video recording it, so they were trying to get her to act out so they could get it on tape. But it must have been, like, legit serious because one of the deputies actually ended up suing her later for this incident.
1: Oh, damn. Yeah. You crazy, Betty.
0: <laughs> right? You think it's, and it's funny because you kind of see some of this in the movie. And I have to say, you see, before she gets into that scuffle with them, you see her get into this little, like, tiff with an inmate. And it's actually the old lady from the Insidious movies. And I was just like, oh, my God, she's so young. Because this movie is, like, hella old. I was just like, ah. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> and it's like, you think that's dramatic, but then you read the real story and it's like, she spreads shit everywhere. I'm just like, Jesus Fuck, Betty. Goddamn.
1: Well, she didn't have anything else to throw. This
0: is true. This is true. So almost a year after the original trial began, we're going to go for round two. So on October 15th of 1991, this is when the second and thankfully final trial starts. The prosecution wants first degree murder and the defense wanted to go for voluntary manslaughter as far as the charges go because they were again focusing on the fact that she was just driven to do this and she didn't know what she was doing.
1: Betty, you waited until like you were free to do it. Like the time to kill him is like before the divorce. You plan things slow. Yeah, and it's
0: so funny because (laughs) it's just like a little, like, side thing. She does all kinds of fucking interviews. If you want to get a taste of the real Betty, you don't have to go very far. There was a thing that was like, I didn't plan this. I had just went grocery shopping the night before. I spent $400. I had bought swordfish and blah, 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 and bought all this expensive stuff. I hadn't planned to kill my ex-husband. I was like,
1: "What? (laughs) what? No, Betty. Who buys swordfish? Like, being <laughs> realistic. Yeah. It was like swordfish and some other weird seafood. Like, who's going to buy swordfish, which is fucking expensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was weird. So,
0: basically, this trial is a repeat of the first one, except Carrie Wells fucking gets it. She expands her case, and she comes after Betty a lot harder. And fucking the defense is a joke. Anyway, a couple like key points I have here that come up this time is on November 15th, Betty says again that she doesn't remember any of it. She doesn't even remember pulling the trigger that she was in a, quote, altered state of consciousness. But then Carrie brings up, how can you not remember saying anything, but you're able to correct your daughter's testimony when you said, quote, he, meaning Dan, didn't say you shot me. She said, correcting her daughter's testimony at the hearing, he said, okay, okay, you got me. There's no pain and there was no blood. It was simple. That's how she described Dan and Linda's death. But she don't remember shit.
1: No, that's not how altered state of consciousness
0: works. No, not at all.
1: I'm pretty sure like you may have some like vague recollection. Like, I don't know. I'm going to research this in the interim because this is just my opinion. It could be a hot take. I don't know. I just don't think you remember like I think a lot of people who suffer from disorders where they really do go into an altered state of consciousness probably be very offended by that like you know.
0: Yeah and also later in the trial the voicemails are played I don't believe they were played the first time around if I'm incorrect in that my apologies but from my understanding they weren't. This is definitely something that shows right there in your face that Betty was definitely not exactly sane and that she's not putting the well-being and everything of her children first, that she just doesn't give a flying fuck, that she just wants to inflict pain and be mean and hurt you know on everybody else like mm-hmm. especially in the movie too like I'm not sure if this happened in real life or not but in the movie they show that her youngest son picks up the phone mid voicemail and then she starts cussing and yelling at him and saying all these inappropriate things you know
1: well it's because he had the audacity to be like and it didn't matter who disagreed with her whether it was her youngest son or her grandpa I don't know it's just like there's no grandpims. Maybe I just said it because the age gap right example yeah it's that he said mommy why do you have to be so mean to daddy and Linda it makes me sad or something along those lines right and she's like oh he's with her he like she calls him calls her a whore like a child prostitute Mm -hmm. calls him a pervert and it's like at first like he like drops the phone and like runs upstairs I'm like hang the phone up but then I was like oh you smart kid she can't call back (laughs)
0: hmm True. I think it also speaks volumes that her own kids testify against her. Like, that was a very brave thing of them to do, too. I have to say that.
1: Right. And it didn't seem like at any point in time, and this could be the way they're just telling the story, is that her kids were like, yeah, we really want more time with our mom. Because, like, there's a scene in the movie where it's Kim's, like, high school graduation, and Linda and Dan are there, and... Betty's there with her friend, and it's just, it's horrible because, like, they go to take pictures of their daughter graduating, and then Linda and Betty kind of see each other, and then she's kind of, like, harassing Linda with the camera.
0: Yeah. Yeah, she's, like, taking pictures, like, in her face and stuff, yeah. Right. Just, like, causing a scene. And so...
1: Linda kind of shoves it back in her face. Like I just love the line. It was like, if you take one more picture of me, I'm you're gonna be taking pictures of the inside of your throat. I was like, oh, Linda, <laughs> you spicy little woman. And then Dan was just like, he walked up and he was like, hi, Betty, <laughs> having like having a good day. Okay, let's go. <laughs> So then on
0: December 5th of 91, the second trial would conclude Judge Whalen would tell the jury that their options would be voluntary manslaughter, first degree or second degree murder. They would take about five days for their deliberations and they would come back on December 10th with their decision. And Betty would be found guilty on two counts of second degree murder and two counts using a firearm in the commission of a felony. Now, Betty is currently at the California Institution for Women in Chino, California, where she is serving two consecutive terms of 15 years to life plus two years, which is the maximum on that for illegal use of a firearm. She has went up for parole more than once already. In November of 2011, she was denied. That was her first time up for showing no remorse whatsoever for what she has done. Uh, And that's a direct quote from an article on that. And then she was also denied again in January of 2017 for along the same lines. Basically, Betty's story hasn't changed. She still is playing the victim. She still thinks what she has done is justified and really doesn't see anything wrong with it. And that's appalling. So everyone's like, fuck, no, you're not getting the fuck out. So the next time she will be eligible for parole will be January of 2032. And Betty is old as fuck. So um, good luck. Good luck, Betty. That's all I got to say to you about that.
1: Damn, Betty. Because like the basic thing to get parole is you just have to show remorse. Like you have to be like, I'm really sorry I did this. Like I'm not going to go out and kill again. Like I've learned my lesson.
0: Right. But um do you want to tell your personal connection to wrap us up?
1: Sure. So, I don't know if I've ever shared this intimate detail of my life on this podcast before, but I am actually the daughter of a felon. My mother, who I love dearly and I want to say that people can make bad choices and bad situations and change their lives because Tara knew my mom mm-hmm. and probably would have never thought she was a felon. I mean, she probably thought my mom was a party girl at a point in time because we were watching EZA and we are sitting on the couch and there's that line where get a face piercing and a lower back tattoo. And it's like a negative connotation. My mom was like, what's wrong with that? And we were like, okay. <laughs> okay, mom. But um, I just want to say that I don't look down on people who commit crimes. I don't think that it has to define you the rest of your life because my mother robbed a casino when I was three-ish she worked at a casino and she basically rigged it so that way when people would like leave they would go and pick up all the tickets around the casino and cash them out and basically she stole fifteen thousand dollars from a casino in reno and boarded a plane to fresno and my mom spent some time in prison surprisingly enough not for that but because of a weird violation that happened don't want to go into that (laughs) but um she spent some time in i don't think in chino i think she spent it in chowchilla and this movie is from 1992 and i was watching this my mother and i lived together for a period of time when i was an adult and i was watching this because you know me i love true crime stuff because obviously i have a podcast (laughs) about it. and my mom walks in and is watching it and she goes oh betty that crazy bitch and I was like, uh, yeah, she's pretty crazy. She's like, oh, no, you should have met her in person. And I'm like, uh, lady, I can't. She's um, in prison. And then my mom explained to me that when she did some time, and she may have been in Chino for a while, I'm not sure. She actually was in the same cell block as Betty. And I was like, what? <laughs> so and I know. This is like, I just want to let you guys know, like this is for me, this is a very hard share because it's something really super personal in my life that we don't talk about not even in my own family like I'm pretty sure my little brother doesn't even know why my mom was in prison <laughs> <laughs> but I I had the great privilege of talking to my mom about her mistakes and learning her story and really seeing that you can change your life it does take some time but she literally put the hard work in and and did overcome a lot of shit And, um, you know, when she passed, she was living a more successful life and she had a great relationship with me. She has a great relationship with my younger brother. It was everyone has a weird relationship with my older brother, but she kind of came in and took care of my grandparents who raised me. And if a lot of you were wondering why um, (laughs) I was raised by my grandparents, that's a big part of it. Some of it was by personal choice. Some of it was by the fact that my mother was in prison for three years. So. I just want to let you know that if you're one of those people out there who've made a mistake in your life and you're not sure you can, you can turn your life around. It just takes a lot of work. And the first thing you need to do is ask those people around you for forgiveness, because I will tell you that my mom and I had a very strained relationship until I was probably in my like early 20s when my mom finally sat down and, and like really... like I loved my mom, but I never saw her as a mom. And then when she sat me down and she just was like... I'm really sorry I did this. I'm really sorry this happened. Because a lot of it was like she didn't take a lot of responsibility for what she did. And when she finally did, like our family became really strong and kind of got back together. And so, yeah, I think that there is always forgiveness. I mean, maybe not for Betty (laughs) because she doesn't seem to be quite remorseful. She says that she's regretful but not remorseful, which are two different things. So... Yeah, I just said when Tara and I were looking at stories and she threw Betty's name to me, I was like, oh, my God, yes, (laughs) because my mom knew her. (laughs) (laughs) Done deal. (laughs) Yeah. So um, and that wraps my story up.
0: All right, guys. Well, that is going to conclude our episode here on Crazy Betty. We hope you guys enjoyed it to learn something new. Uh, If you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can always reach us on the socials. We love interacting with you. You know where to find us. And we will catch you on Thursday for our next Stabby Snippet. You guys have a good day. Bye, guys.
1: Bye.